Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Hear the words of Psalm 105, verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. So let us uh, express our thanksgiving to God as in the psalm now by standing and singing together hymn 122. together. Great God in heaven, how thankful we are again for the hour of worship and the opportunity to praise your name. May we confess to you, O Lord, our great desire to do so. And we find that in a year such as this, our our desire is emboldened, uh, our, our zeal to worship you. We look forward to uh, the preaching of the word in which we'll see another clear demonstration of the zeal you have for your own worship. Father, we pray that our zeal might uh, might match yours. And so far as we are capable of doing so, 
We know, O oh God, that we were created for worship. And it is the great vocation that you've given to man above all others. It really is the one thing that determines the whole course of the rest of his week. It's how he begins the week on Sundays. It was the great task given to Adam. Everything else was secondary to that. To that. And just so long as, uh, or, or just as soon as he began to live according to his own ideas, rejecting yours, was he cast out of the garden. Uh, Father, we ask you that uh, we would we would listen carefully and deeply to what you have to say to us and that it would sink not only into our minds but into our hearts and that you, O Holy Spirit, would change our desires so, uh, so that we would not only hear what you have to say but that we would accept it and delight in all of your commandments, recognizing that everything that you say is best is really best and that you are the best Father and the best God and the only God. And so why would we ever seek to worship you according to our own ideas or our own wisdom? Why would we ever seek to uh, go about the Christian life according to our own wisdom? Father, uh, we, we find in many ways in the current age, in the current hour, that you are testing and trying the church. And we ask you, O oh God, that in this place, that so often, as indeed in many places, not knowing exactly what to do, that you would give us great wisdom, but that above all, that you would give us faith. Faith to believe in your promises, faith to obey your commandments, and that our, our zeal to worship you, and indeed, as with the Israelites, our fear not to do so, as they expressed to Pharaoh, would override other concerns. Might we go on in all of this that we're doing? Uh, would, you, would you please, O oh God, keep the churches in this country open, whatever it is we're facing? And would you give zeal to your ministers uh, to, if necessary, uh, defy the magistrates, O oh God? Uh, we need... We need wisdom, we need caution, we need restraint, of course. We don't want to be reckless, and we must show uh, due deference, but, oh God, we must obey you. We must obey you. And that is the message of Moses, it is the message of Jesus Christ. Be careful to do all that I commanded you. Father, again, we're afraid not to. We are afraid to give up the worship of your name. We are afraid uh, of you. And so long as there's a true fear of you, oh God, where is there the room for the fear of any man? But, Lord, we need great wisdom going forward. Uh, days of darkness, days, well, just days of darkness. What more do we need to say, O oh Lord? There is so much sin in the world, and sin is gloried in more than anything else, more even than righteousness. Uh, Father, the country has gone so far down into the depths of sin. We're now glorying in our shame, glorying in what is said uh, is homosexual marriage. It's an abomination. Oh, Lord, we, we have we have it would seem descended as deep as a nation possibly can. And our prayer is only, oh, God, that you would have great mercy upon us. Uh, we don't know what else to pray. This nation of ours deserves to be overthrown. It deserves to be judged and ruined. But God, if only for the sake of the church, we pray that you would keep a faithful witness and that you would have mercy on our land. We pray that through times of trial and darkness as indeed in days of old, that you would cause the church to come surging through in her true office, shining brightly as lights in a world of darkness. For where uh, is the opportunity for light greatest except when the darkness is the greatest? And so we ask, O oh God, rather than the church, as we so often see, conforming to the spirit of the age, we pray that the church, the church might surge forth in faith in a new way, seeing uh, all that we are facing as a new opportunity to worship you with a renewed and a greater zeal. We pray, O oh God, that through the many trials you might purify our faith and that you might purify what is still worldly in us. 
Give us a greater sense and a greater apprehension of that which is heavenly, which is the true essence and the nature of worship and indeed of the Christian life. Oh God, we cry out to you and we the thing we ask for most, whatever should happen in the kingdoms of this world is for the kingdom of God. Our great desire is not only to partake of it and to belong of it, but to do so of its fullness, to experience its righteousness and its perfection and its peace and its joy. Not the worry and the anxiety and the fretting of this world. Too often these things uh, come into the church and we bring them with us in our very hearts. Oh God, might we rest content under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And might we be content to be participants of his kingdom. And we pray that for us this would be an ever-growing realization. That more and more we would experience his kingship and his rule. Lord Jesus, to you we bow the knee and to you uh, we alone declare you are king. And you are the ruler not only of your church. And may you be so forevermore. That is to say, oh Jesus, that we would not forsake you here. But may you continue to rule in our midst and in our lives and in our worship. But you are the one who rules in the midst of the nations. And so we ask you that as you describe in the Sermon on the Mount, in particular Matthew chapter 6, that you would cultivate in the hearts of your people a freedom from care and an easygoing spirit throughout the world. Because in everything that we find, even adversity, we find the Father's will and the Father's love. Would you continue, O oh Father, to manifest these things to us, not only in worship, but in the trials that are in the world awaiting us, whatever they are. O oh God, would you cause us to sleep easy, knowing that you are in control. And would you enable us throughout the week and throughout the days that we walk to, to live lives which are full of comfort and consolation and joy, even able, as Paul says, to share these things with others, to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. For we have, find that we have found that you are a God of mercy, you are a God of compassion, you are a God of love. And all of these things we have discovered in your Son. And we are still discovering them. We ask you, gracious Father, that you would continue to reveal the Son to us. And we ask you, gracious Son, that you would continue to reveal the Father to us. And in all of this, O Holy Spirit, that you would give to us uh, th- that faith, which is the hidden principle and the secret inward working in the heart, which enables us to apprehend all of these things and to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And so, O oh God, it is our prayer going forward and even in the hour in which we are engaged in worship that our lights might be shining brightly in the world of darkness and that we would seek not so much to change the systems of the world, but that we would see our true place in the world as salt and as light. In other words, O oh Lord, rather than fretting over the world, let our hearts be full of concerns with the kingdom of God. And to see just how central the church is to our Christian witness and the great impact that we might have on the world. If only that would be our focus. And so, gracious Savior, we look to you again. We hear the call afresh to follow you. And we reaffirm our desire to be disciples in a world that is full of darkness. But then as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
I'm going to have to take this coat off. (laughs) I'm just too hot. The scripture reading, I want to read, uh, uh, um, the Psalms come later, Exodus 25. And, uh, And notice in that passage... Just one example of uh, the ex- extreme degree of detail that the Lord gives uh, with respect to the tabernacle that, uh, that the Israelites were to construct in the wilderness. And, uh, and ask yourself, what was the Lord after in all of that detail? That is a question uh, that you may have asked yourself many times, in fact, in reading those chapters. And it is a question which our passage in Hebrews answers Uh, but which we have a clue to in verse 40, which is then quoted again in Hebrews chapter 8. Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, and again, verse 40 is what is quoted in our sermon text. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Uh, The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in uh, the one branch, a bulb and a flower and three cups of uh, three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number and they shall mount its lamps so long or or so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. Well, what on earth is the point of all of that detail? Well, here is our clue. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. And there is a point for us to consider in the sermon. But now in response to God's word, let us stand together and sing the doxology. seated. Psalter Selection 33, page 632 of your hymnal, if you would turn there with me. We'll look at Psalm I'll read the unbolded together. Let us read the bolded. 
Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I resort that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Now let us stand and sing praise to our God, hymn 2.16, in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word.
Please be seated. Let us turn now to God's word. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. Uh, And in reality, uh, it's debatable whether verse 6 forms uh, the introduction to verses uh, 7 through 13 or the conclusion of verses 1 through 5. I am more of the opinion now that it is uh, the introduction, but now it, it introduces a new thought. But we'll conclude it in the re- or include it. I mean, in the reading, our focus is verses one through five. However, now the main point and what has been said is this: we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. Who serve a copy and a shadow of things of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now as, uh, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Let us pray together. Dear God, uh, we are thankful indeed for uh, the reading of your word. We ask you uh, that you might continually through uh, not only the reading, but especially the preaching to shed greater light on your word and that we might take to heart the great, great things which are offered to us in this epistle. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had at first intended to take all of chapter 8 together. Uh, I had, uh, for so many years, uh, considered chapter 8 under just one heading, and that was the minister of a better covenant. Uh, But in reality, as I now see, that is the argument beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. There is a slightly different point being made about our high priest in verses 1 through 5. And indeed, the point continues to be, all the way since chapter 2 of the epistle, that we as the church might see and understand the kind of priest we have in Jesus. Again, he says in chapter 8, verse 1, we have such a high priest as this. And if anything, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 is but a summation of what we've considered thus far. Uh, And depending on your translation, that may be what you have. The NAS has the main point is this, but the main point of what? Or as, um, uh, well, it's just one example. I was looking at the New King James. It says, the sum is this. But imagine you have the same thing in the King James. I'm not sure what you have in the other translations. The point is, though, he's summing up an argument. He's continuing it. What he's been telling us about Jesus to this point, uh, he, is, uh, he is summarizing. And having summarized it, he is expanding it. He is shedding light on a new aspect of that heavenly eternal ministry. You remember in chapter 7, the point was that Jesus is a priest unlike the order of Aaron. Those priests who would die and be replaced by another priest and ultimately with the destruction of the temple, that priesthood just went away. But now he assumes an eternal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 8, verse 1. The main point in what has been said is this. 
We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's a familiar point. It isn't just something that you find in chapter 7. The place where Jesus now is, where he reigns, where he ministers, is in heaven. Is that not part of the Christian confession? Uh, generally summarized as Jesus was born of a virgin. He, he suffered, he died, he rose again. He ascended into heavens where he now lives. He intercedes for us, he rules, he reigns. And from uh, whence he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus has ascended on high. The epistle begins with this thought. Chapter 1, verse 3, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, it just occurred to me that that is a wonderful summary of the entire epistle. He made an offering for sin on the cross and he ascended into the heavens. And so we're considering Jesus in his heavenly capacity. That's what we've been considering. That's what we go on to consider uh, under a new teaching. Jesus in this capacity, is not an earthly priest, as with the priests of old, daily ministering in the earthly tent, the tabernacle. Unlike, Jesus, unlike them, Jesus stands forever as a priest in heaven, and he has and will forevermore stand there as a priest ministering in the presence of God. Jesus, unlike the priests of old, will never be replaced. His priesthood will never be annulled or set aside. He will forevermore, just as the Lord swore, he will forevermore assume a place in the presence of God as our great high priest. And not only the certainty, but also the eternity of our salvation depends upon this fact. This is the kind of priest we have, beloved. We have such a high priest as this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Again and again, this has been the point. That the church might grasp what she has in Jesus. The duty, uh, to state it uh, uh, in that way, the duty of believers and participants of the new covenant, which is to say those whom he represents as a priest, is just that we would grasp this point for ourselves. If you think of it, the same duty was present with the Old Testament believers. Their duty was to reckon with the priests. To be aware and to be conscious of what they had in the priesthood. To recognize what it was that God was offering and what God was doing through the priesthood. It was the priest, the old covenant believer, recognized who offered up sacrifices and worship on his behalf. Entering into the presence of God. Especially the high priest. And so you recognize, based upon this thought, thinking again of the old Testament believer under the law that the whole of his religious life you might say was connected intimately with the priesthood but not only that but we also recognize having said this why the destruction of the temple was so devastating to the to the saints in the old covenant because again uh, his entire religious life with regard to the worship of God was wrapped up in the priesthood and his place in the temple how could he worship God without a priest and how could a priest minister on his behalf without a place to minister? Now, just as I put it like that, it suddenly becomes clear why the emphasis becomes here what it is. That the priesthood and his ministry isn't everything. What is equally important is that he have a place to minister. There is no priesthood without a sanctuary or a tabernacle in which to offer and in which to minister. 
And that same thought applies to the new covenant situation. We need to recognize not only the kind of priest we have in Jesus, but as we discover has been the point all along, ever since the first three verses of the epistle, where it is that his ministry now resides, not on earth, but in heaven. That is a thought which is full of meaning and significance, beloved. And a thought which, uh, again, I have been amazed to discover I have not in my own Christian walk adequately reckoned with. Uh, And so we find again and again that God's word is full of wonderful surprises. The place of Jesus' ministry. What a significant idea that is. It is uh, so significant, in fact, that it forms the basis of all that he says in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And as we'll see, it informs the duty of the believer. Where he is to seek to go and where he is to seek to draw near. Jesus Christ, we as new covenant believers reckoning with his ministry and seeking to grasp the significance of all that he is to us and to God. Jesus as a high priest must not only have something to offer, chapter 8, verse 3. There is no priesthood without an offering. We'll see that in a moment. But he also once more as a high priest must have a place in which to minister. A place that is where he deals with God as an intercessor for the people. The priest must have intimacy with God in his holiness. And we as new covenant believers must realize every bit as much as the Old Testament saints that our whole religious life depends upon our priest ministering not only on our behalf, but in the place of God's appointment that he should have a place in the sanctuary. Take away that place and you take away the priesthood. Again, as I say, the old covenant believer recognized that readily enough. And he mourned when the temple was destroyed. But do we have any sense of this ourselves? Jesus having entered the better and the true sanctuary, which is into heaven itself. Well, the sermon here really isn't all that different than the prior sermon. And and really, in many ways, chapter 7 through 10 is just a repetition and an expansion of the same point. Christ's heavenly ministry. Christ's perfect offering. Just as we found again in chapter 1, verse 3. We are still considering the same idea. When he made purification for sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. And so there's really two main ideas here. As I say, not all that different than the prior sermon. The first is that of offering and then that of the sanctuary. And then as a point of application, we will consider the nature of worship. So three headings. The first Uh, being that of an offering chapter eight, verse three states the matter as chapter uh, states the matter as clearly as chapter five, verse one does chapter five, verse one. Every priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so in chapter eight, verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. There is no priesthood, beloved, without an offering. Hugh Martin says to act as a priest is to offer. That is the essence of his priestly action. And we will, I think, immediately recognize the the significance of this point when we recognize that when he laid down his life on the cross, so central to Christian belief, he was acting in an official capacity as a priest. The priesthood, therefore, more than any other office, explains to us the significance of the cross. 
And we as Christian people will never fully represent what he was doing there unless we see him acting there as a priest, making his offering for the people. The cross was where this priest, this priest made his offering. There is in this thought deep significance for us to consider a deep significance that will be unfolded in the chapters to come, in particular chapters 9 and 10. For now, let us simply see and accept that his priestly service consisted in priestly offering as with all priests, and that priestly offering occurred on the cross. But there's other relevant considerations to bring here with respect to the offering of this high priest. Before we go on to the significance of the cross in chapters to come, uh, very briefly and as a reminder, offerings are made on behalf of men with reference to God. You see this in chapter 5, verse 1. Every, every high priest is taken from among men. He's appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices. He represents the people, but in what he offers, he offers to God. In representing the people and in offering, what he is seeking to do is to address the needs of men. And what matters is that whether what is offered is adequate to address those needs. Again, if you have any familiarity with chapters 9 and 10, you will see that. Why it is Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. But not only that, not only is it necessary to recognize whether that sacrifice or offering is adequate to meet the needs of man, those whom he represents, but equally important is the question whether God accepts what is offered. In both of these things, we will see Jesus is adequate. But in considering this point and in seeking to understand the spiritual significance of offerings, we are bound to ask, what need is there for offering? In other words, why does God appoint a priesthood at all to minister on behalf of man in the presence of God? What is the need he seeks to address and to remedy in making his offerings? And the answer is obviously sin. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 5, verse 1, once more he says that he's appointed on behalf of men to, uh, in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 3, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. Chapter 7, verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The implied thought being by one single offering of himself, he has made atonement for sins. Every offering, therefore, is made for sins. What sins? Well, this is another important question that we have to answer. Again, uh, clarifying for us the, the way in which the priesthood of Jesus Christ clarifies for us the nature and the efficacy of the cross. On the cross, Jesus was putting away sins. Again, we will see just how adequate he was to do so, that offering, to put away sin once for all. And just how willing the Father is to accept that sacrifice. But the point is, he was putting away sin. He was making an offering for sins. The sins of whom? 
as a priest the sins of the people from whom he was taken and appointed to represent as a priest. Not sins, therefore, indiscriminately, not the sins of the whole world, but only those sins of those for whom he was appointed and represented as a priest. Those whom Jesus calls in chapter 10 his sheep, for whom he lays down his life. Those who hear his voice, those who know him. The elect. But what does his offering aim to achieve with respect to the sins of the people? Well, I think I've already said it, but let me just say it again. The answer is stated variously in the letter. In chapter 2, verse 17, as propitiation. As in uh, chapter 9, verse 26, putting away sin. Chapter 10, verse 4, as taking away of sin. And you'll notice, by the way, from all of these references in chapters 9 and 10, how much this will become a central idea. Simply as the forgiveness of sin, verse uh, 22 of chapter 9 and verse 18 of chapter 10. And then as being perfected, chapter 10, verse 14. With the assumed idea that without sin... That is, with the removal of sin, by his priestly offering, those whom he represents are made perfect in the eyes of God. This is something, as I say, that I'm very eager to go into. And we will as uh, we go on with our study in chapters 9 and 10, what it is Jesus accomplishes on the cross. But it is clear we can say at this point that offerings are made in order to atone for sin. They are made in order to remove the stain of sin so that the sinner might be made acceptable to God as a true worshiper. And without such an offering, a bloody sacrifice, there is no forgiveness. Uh, This will become in many ways a central point in the sermons to come. Chapter 9, verse 22. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This was the great lesson of the ceremonial law. That God not only requires an offering to atone for sin, but he requires the shedding of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the lesson which Christ fulfills and demonstrates perfectly. Why such a transaction is necessary is what we will leave for future sermons to unfold. Why it is that God requires the shedding of blood and even the blood of his own son to bring in forgiveness. Here simply the point is such a transaction has occurred. One which is holy and acceptable and succeeds in atoning for sin. Again, Jesus is a true priest because his offering brings with it true atonement. Chapter 7, verse 27. Chapter 2, verse 17. And chapter 8, verse 3. Something which stands in direct contrast to the old priest who offered up sacrifices daily but never succeeded in atoning for sin. Whereas Christ, by a single offering, put away sin forever. But that really isn't the main point here. As I say, in many ways, it will become the main point or one of the main points, but far more significant here, having seen that Jesus is a true priest because he has something to offer. Is the place of his ministry, not on earth, but in heaven. Chapter eight, verses one, two, four and five all make this point. And so in the second place, we find the sanctuary of the priesthood. Verse 6, he has a better ministry, a more excellent ministry. If we are to see this, we must not only see how much better his offering is, 
But we also have to see how much better the sanctuary is in which he ministers. Which, as I say, is the main point of the passage. Again, we have such a high priest, a true one indeed, because of what he offers, verse 3. But also because of this, verses 1 and 2. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. In one sense, the point is perfectly straightforward. Again, it's something that we've seen throughout the epistle, the fact that Jesus has ascended on high, that he has taken his place in heaven, the throne of God, which he calls in another place a throne of grace. It is from uh, that place that he ministers grace to the people. It is also from that place that he makes intercession to God for the people. That's a point we'll return to. But as I say, it's it's a straightforward point in many ways. But it is also a point which is full of significance, a significance... Uh, which I imagine without a passage such as this, we might be apt to miss. Christ has ascended into heavens, into the heavens. Now he is there reigning at the right hand of the throne on majesty. He is the king. He is the one who rules. Using the language of Psalm 110, he will rule until all his enemies are placed under his foot as a footstool. But also as he is there, again, let us always remember that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is both. He is both a king and a priest. Significantly, as he stands there in heaven, the throne of the majesty on high, he makes no offering. Again, pointing to another significant difference between this priest and the old priest. As they entered into the tabernacle, they made their offerings. Jesus, having made his offering once for all at the cross, enters the Holy of Holies, having already made a perfect offering. What is his priestly activity then as he enters into heaven? As we saw last time, it consists in the act of intercession. Chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is all able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But we see that because he's entered into the heavenly sanctuary, which is the true and in reality the only one there ever was, And there he forever dwells on high in the presence of God. His ministry is obviously so much better than anything of the Old Testament priesthood. This is a point which depends upon our grasp and understanding of the difference between two simple phrases. You have on earth, verse 4. If he were on earth, he would would not be a priest at all. And in heaven, verse 1. He's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The point is Jesus as a priest dwells in heaven. Not upon the earth. This is the difference. Between the temporal and the eternal. It is the difference between the type and the reality as we'll see. And here we discover another strong reason. That Jesus priesthood will abide forever. Not only has the Lord sworn that he will be a priest forever. Not only is his priesthood animated by indestructible life since he's an eternal person. And not only does his priesthood stand forever because his once for all offering stands forever. But here we discover another reason. It's because the temple or the sanctuary in which he now dwells is the true and the eternal one. Which abides forever. 
another reason the priesthood of Jesus Christ is forevermore. A priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The place of his ministry. There he deals not with that which is earthly and passing away. But he deals always with that which is eternal. This is stated even more clearly. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. And here you'll gain a sense of uh, how important this point is in the unfolding argument about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would not have needed to suffer often since the foundation. Uh, He would have needed, excuse me, to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's manifested, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, I just go back to chapter 1, verse 3. When he made purification of sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. He entered into heaven itself. But what is so interesting to notice, and this is the point that will flow in uh, and make way for the final point of application, is the relationship between the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly one. You might think that the point of the passage was that because the the heavenly sanctuary is the true one, the earthly one had no significance, it had no meaning, it had no importance. But you would miss the point. What is so interesting to notice, in fact, is the relationship between the heavenly and the earthly sanctuary, a relationship which our writer tells us was a real relationship. It was a vital relationship. In fact, as I'll uh, hope to, to convince you, it was by dealing with the earthly tabernacle that the priests of old and the saints of old were able to deal with heaven itself, because, again, the one corresponded to the other and the relationship was a real one. And so. I would say that sometimes typology works in reverse. Sometimes you read about the types and you have no sense of clarity until you come to the reality and you go back and read about the types and suddenly you discover their significance. Uh, I confess in the early service, I'll confess it again. You read all of the details of the old covenant, uh, all of the, the, uh, the precision that the Lord had with regard to the lampstand, for instance. Are we not tempted sometimes to simply skim through all of those details? Or just to do it? But do we understand what the Lord was doing there? The significance of the sign or the type is clarified by the reality. Now that we have Jesus, we know what the Lord was doing in the Old Covenant What we discover here is that the earthly tabernacle in which the priest of the old covenant ministered daily was actually a copy and a shadow of the heavenly one. It was patterned in all its exact dimensions and details as you find in Exodus as uh, after the heavenly sanctuary. Listen again to what the Lord says in verse 40 of Exodus 25 and quoted here in Hebrews chapter 8. See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. What was the pattern the Lord was revealing to Moses in the tabernacle? It was the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. That is why God was so careful in giving all the details and exact requirements to Moses and even warning him to be careful to follow them all. It was because of what he was revealing to Israel and what he was revealing to Moses. 
The tabernacle was a type and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. And what this means is that the purpose of that tabernacle was always to give the Old Testament priests and saints an apprehension of the heavenly realities. As John Calvin says, we hence learn that the ancient rituals were not without reason appointed and that the form of the tabernacle was not an empty thing, for there was a real and spiritual meaning in all these things. It doesn't mean, as Calvin goes on to say, that we look for significance in every single detail. Uh, It's very easy to allegorize the Old Testament. What it does mean is that in the total of the details, we discover the the heavenly pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. And that is what leads me to the third point, by way of application. What we learn about worship from this thought, the worship of the Old Covenant saints as analogous to the worship of the New Covenant saints, both of us dealing with the sanctuary. And what we discover is how it is our worship is connected to the priesthood and by the priesthood is connected to the sanctuary. This is a point that Hugh Martin makes again in his book, The Atonement, which I have by my side. He speaks of the intercession of Jesus Christ. I spoke of this earlier as involving three things. I spoke of two of them. Uh, On the one hand, he is our advocate before the Father. He makes pleas and intercessions before him. On the other hand, from heaven as our intercessor, he pities us, he helps us in the moment of need, especially in the hour of temptation. But there's a third thing that he does, which I confess at first I was not prepared to accept, or at least I couldn't see how it was true, although now it's perfectly clear to me. And that is, as our heavenly intercessor and as our great high priest, he leads the church on in worship. As I say, now the point is perfectly clear to me. You understand the Old Testament situation or under the law. All of the ceremonial law dealing with the priesthood, the ceremonies, the tabernacle, all of it had to do with worship. They were ordinances or commandments with respect to worship. God was telling the old covenant saint how to worship him. How it was that he uh, appointed and desired that they would worship him. That was the whole point of the tabernacle and of the priesthood. And what we discover from the Old Testament worship are certain truths about the priesthood and worship that were always true. Both then and now. Which informs uh, both what their worship looked like but also what our worship looks like as we, like them, relate to God through a priest in our worship. First, something that we discover, and which I think sometimes we are not prepared to allow with respect to the old covenant saints, is that worship is something that is spiritual. And that is something that is always true and has always been true. That was just as true in the old covenant. It is true, as our confession says, That the worship of the new covenant is greatly simplified. That all of the externals and the ceremonies of the old covenant are simplified now in the new covenant. So that we would have a better and a clearer view of the spiritual nature of worship. But do not make the mistake of thinking that in dealing with God through so many externals. That their worship wasn't spiritual. No, true worship is something that, uh, that is always spiritual. It always has been. It was true of Israel. It's true of us today. In the externals, the ceremonies and the rites and the priesthood, 
the Israelites dealt not so much with the outward things. But by these things, they were given some apprehension of the spiritual realities as uh, as the outward earthly corresponded to the heavenly. Through the earthly, they had a sense of the heavenly. And you might even say they were transported into heaven itself by faith. There's a very similar instance of this in New Covenant worship, which we find in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an external rite. It is a ceremony. It is a priestly ceremony, as I'll argue. It's the same principle and the same exact phenomenon. By the earthly, we deal with the heavenly. Another argument we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that the saints of the old covenant, as they dwelt in the land of promise, there in the external earthly reality, What did they deal with by faith? The heavenly. They looked forward to the Jerusalem that was to come. They were living by faith. Looking into the hidden unseen spiritual realities of heaven. Though they dwelt on earth. Let me ask you this question. I think the book of Hebrews clarifies uh, the answer. Was their situation really all that different from ours? The reality is it was not. They like us. Uh, lived by faith and they found in so many ways and by so many tokens an apprehension of the heavenlies. By dealing with the heavenly pattern, they were able to deal with the reality itself. Speaking of the priesthood in the tabernacle. By faith, they were able to apprehend that after which it was all patterned and which it represented. And so the great aim of worship has always been to bring the believer into the presence of God and there to deal with heavenly things. Number two. Worship has always been something that God appoints, and it is always dangerous to ignore his appointments, as the Old Covenant illustrates You find in all of the detail that the Lord gives his own zeal for worship. The fact that worship is something that comes by his appointment and that we should never go beyond his appointment, nor should we detract uh, one iota from it. What I'm describing is what we what we call the regulative principle of worship. Worship is something that God commands and we are not free again to go beyond it or to, to detract from it. Be careful to do all that I have told you, he says, with respect to worship. We recognize from the example of Israel how disaster it is uh, for the church to depart from the Lord in worship. They were an unbelieving apostate generation because they forsook the worship of the living God for idols. Worship is always the central issue. It always has been. But I think an even greater point that we see here is that his appointments are never arbitrary. God doesn't say to the church, I want you to do so because I said so. Is it possible, beloved, that sometimes we think of the regulative principle that way? We say God has commanded such and such without understanding why he has commanded such and such. And what it is he is seeking to inculcate into the life of the church in her worship. God is always seeking to cultivate. And as I say, this was just as true in the old covenant. A taste and a sense of his own heavenly life. That worship consists in a participation of heavenly life and power. By worship, God brings us into heaven itself. Yes, he really does. I'll prove that to you in a moment. And he allows us by worship to deal with him there. 
And as I say, that was just as true in the old covenant. By dealing with the heavenly pattern, they dealt with that after which it was patterned. God through worship. And again, I think the Lord's Supper uh, demonstrates this as much as anything. Gives us a sense of the sacred. He gives us a sense of his own transcendent heavenly life. Taking us beyond the earthly. And enabling us to deal with the heavenly. If that's not what we're doing in worship. Well then I say we've missed the point every bit as much as Israel did. The significance of the regulative principle of worship, beloved. Seen so cleanly here, or clearly here, excuse me. It's not just, uh, I think we're guilty of this sometimes, so that we can say we're hardcore. Look how serious we are about the Bible. I've been guilty of that many times in my life. I've had to repent of that over and over again. The significance of it is that we understand what it is that God is doing. The best worship always comes by God's appointment. Do you believe that? The most spiritual, heavenly worship is that which God commands. Everything else is earthly. Everything else is carnal. And nothing else is sanctifying in the presence of God. But the more closely we adhere to his commands, the more closely we are thereby given an entrance into heaven. And so we also realize in the third place, by considering what was uh, what it was those Old Testament rites and rituals corresponded to, namely Christ himself, what God's great aim in all of this was. He is not only enabling us to deal with the heavenlies, but he is revealing to us in worship our need for and the reality of our great high priest, who is Jesus Christ. Do we not have, once again, another example of this in the Lord's Supper? That by faith, we deal not with bread and wine, but with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But if you look at the Old Covenant, you'll find the exact same thing. Every form that God appoints, and that he tells the church to be careful to observe, whether it be the rites and the rituals of the Old Covenant priesthood, or uh, the preaching and the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. They all have the same goal. Which is that by these things God is revealing to us the glory of our Savior. And in particular, significantly, the glory of his priesthood. Not only did all the ceremonial law reveal that to the church. But all of the rites and the rituals of the New Covenant reveal that in the same way. And to a greater degree. John Calvin says... There are no true symbols of religion, but those which conform to Christ. And I would only add to Christ in his priesthood. And the more we are able to see in worship the kind of priest we have in Jesus, as he's revealed to us more and more through his own ordinances, and especially, let me underline, how his ministry to us occurs through these means. Christ is our high priest, pitying us, helping us at the table through the preaching the more we will see how much our worship depends on his priesthood. How could we, any more than the Old Testament saints, ever worship God without a priest? And the more our worship will be emboldened by the the same thought. Our worship depends upon our heavenly priest. And so the thought becomes this. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, as we'll see. And and listen to this as a description of corporate worship, not of private prayer. 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again and again, you see, the point is that in worship we are dealing with the heavenlies. Because Christ is there. Or as Hugh Martin puts it so well, speaking of the church and her worship under the leadership of her heavenly intercessor, having this great high priest, he says, over the house of God, she draw near, draws near with a true heart. Having Jesus, the Son of God, who is a great high priest, has passed into the heaven, she comes boldly to the throne of grace. She enters heaven by faith and prayer and song. Heaven is her only temple now. That's the whole sermon summed up in one line. Heaven is her only temple now. And in reality, heaven was the only temple the church ever had, even in the old covenant. But understand why it is so, beloved. It is because not only of who our high priest is, but where he is. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has been who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Amen. And I would ask the elders to join me at the table. Well, I've already said so much about uh, the Lord's Supper in the sermon. Uh, just again and again, as I thought of how the old covenant rites were showing forth Christ's uh, priestly office and his priestly sacrifice, I couldn't help but think that God was demonstrating the same things in this earthly rite patterned after uh, the heavenly pattern. Uh, and so the question really, as Hebrews or um, 1 Corinthians 11 makes clear, is what is it that we are dealing with here? Are we dealing with just uh, bread and wine? Is it just an outward common meal? Or are we dealing with that which is sacred and therefore transcendent? Are we dealing with the priesthood of Jesus Christ? Do we find him in this ministering to us? Or at least are we seeking that from him? Are we seeking for him to pity us and to strengthen our faith, though it is weak? That's really the only question. I'm not asking you if you have strong faith. I'm not asking you if you have great faith or a tremendously holy life. When Paul says, I want you to examine yourself... That's all he's asking is what is it you're seeking and what are you how uh, how do you regard the meal? Is it a sacred rite or a common meal? Does it represent the heavenly pattern or is it just bread and wine? He says this, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You see what it corresponds to. That's the question we have to ask. A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks 
eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Again, if he does not have some sense of that which, after which it is patterned. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And so on. The question is simply whether we have uh, faith in Christ's sacrifice and whether we recognize that by his appointed means he is ministering uh, the grace and the mercy and the merits of that sacrifice to us. Beloved, if that's what you are seeking, then the table is for you and find it in the strong token of his love and his mercy. But as I say, if this is just a common meal to you and if you find in your heart that you despise it, then I must warn you not to come. Even believers are warned in 1 Corinthians 11 to be careful how they take. That's the argument. What you're examining is not so much the worth of your own life. Your, your life is worthless in the sight of God. But it's whether you partake in a worthy manner. This is an act of worship. That's the point of the whole sermon. If, uh, let us worship God by coming to the table. But let us pray first. Father in heaven, we thank you. Uh, For the the ministry of the Lord's table, we pray, gracious Savior, that you would minister your grace to us, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would work in us a greater work of repentance, and that you would enable us uh, to to greater and, and, uh, and, and better lay hold of you in your priestly office. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I'm ministering in his name. Give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples. As I'm ministering in his name, give this cup to you. As a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Please remember, if you don't mind, to uh, take your two cups and throw them out on your way out. Uh, But now as we close out our worship, let us stand uh, together and sing hymn 125 in praise to the Savior.
than every former friend. Receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.